1: This is the Alien UFO Podcast, Episode 8, and I'm your host, Simon Bowne. My mission here at the Alien UFO Podcast is to investigate all things that are part of the wider UFO phenomena. I'm looking at UFO sightings, alien abduction, historic cases, and other related events. This is the free version of the episode. The extended episode is 29 minutes longer than this version, and to get access to the extra 29 minutes, you can join the Alien UFO Podcast Patreon campaign. When you sign up for $7.50 a month you get an extended episode every week and for $4.50 a month you get an extended episode every month. There are now eight extended episodes available but the back catalogue will grow every week. The Patreon episodes are ad-free and are released two days before the free versions. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. My website is pastliveshypnosis.co.uk and the links are in the show notes please check out my other podcast, it's called The Past Lives Podcast. There are over 190 episodes. On The Past Lives Podcast, I look into evidence of the afterlife, such as near-death experiences, children with past life memories, mediumship, deathbed visions and other phenomena. And if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And this week I'm talking to Kevin Randall about his book, Level Land. Kevin is a prominent ufologist. Within the UFO community, he is often regarded as one of the preeminent experts on the reported crash of a UFO near Roswell, New Mexico, in July 1947. He is a professional, best-selling author with over 100 books to his name. He has a PhD in psychology and was in the United States Air Force and the National Guard, where he held the rank of Lieutenant Colonel before retiring in 2009. Hi, Kevin. Thanks a lot for coming on to the podcast. What? Well, I enjoyed the trip
0: overseas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're talking about your book Level Land, uh, which is about a series of UFO sightings back in 1957, around that time. But then it goes into more detail and analyze this idea of electromagnetic radiation. Is it affecting cars? So the engines cut out and the lights cut out.
0: That's yes. That's what we're looking for there. Uh, the the idea of these electromagnetic effects actually began in England in 1909 when a fellow riding his motorcycle uh, saw some kind of a object or a orb or a light in the distance field, and as he approached it, the headlight on his motorcycle went out. And I think that's the first reported case of an electromagnetic effect on a mechanical device. And from there, it's kind of expanded out to uh, all sorts of things. Uh, the, in, in Europe, in um, 1954, particularly France and then South America as well, there were a lot of sightings of the objects close to the ground, the uh, uh, magnetic fields, electromagnetic fields, affecting car engines and other things like that. But in those cases, a lot of times they saw occupants, creatures from the craft outside. And as they approached the craft, they would would overcome with a feeling of paralysis and couldn't move or couldn't speak until the beings left or the craft left. And so that's kind of a thing that didn't happen in Level Land, Texas. In Level Land, all we had was the uh, object seen close to the ground, installing car engines. We have at least... Thirteen independent witnesses at thirteen separate locations reporting on this phenomenon, and I think that's an important thing to to point out. And it's also important to understand that this is the time before social media. So when your car stalled, you couldn't whip out your cell phone and tell all your friends what had happened to you. You couldn't uh, text it. You couldn't put it on TikTok. You couldn't put it on Instagram. So. People in the area didn't know what was happening to you until they read about it in the newspapers or heard about it on the radio the next day. So it's interesting in Levelland, we have a period of about two hours. from around 1030, actually maybe a little more from, from 1030 at night until about two o'clock in the morning, where people were calling the local law enforcement, the sheriff's office, telling them what was happening to their cars, that they would clip approach this UFO, the UFO would approach them. The car engine would stall, the lights would go out, the radios would fill with static. And once the UFO was gone, they were able to restart their cars and their radios played fun and the lights came back on. And so you don't have an opportunity for people to kind of coordinate this thing because they couldn't call their friends. They couldn't, uh, uh, put it on social media. So they're independently reporting it to the sheriff's office to the point where the sheriff then went out to look for the object. And he actually found it. Um, Initial reports that he got, uh, he saw an object that was oval shaped, bright red, glowing red. Later reports in the Air Force file said, well, he was 900 yards away and it was just a streak of light in the distance. But I think the evidence pretty well points to the sheriff getting involved in this much more deeply. And I can go into that a little bit later. The Air Force investigation came in and said, well, it was ball lightning. Uh, Overlooking the fact that in 1957, ball lightning wasn't uh, accepted as a real thing by an awful lot of scientists. And it's still a point of controversy whether it really exists. But the other point is it's very short-lived seconds. It's 18 inches to 24 inches, you know, uh, a foot and a half to two feet in diameter. And that's it. And the witnesses are talking about watching the UFO for 5, 10, 15 minutes and it's much, much larger, so clearly it's not ball lightning. So we ended up with this case, and I think it's almost as important as a Roswell case, given the number of independent witnesses that we've been able to locate, given the timing of the events, given the documentation available, not only in the Project Blue Book files, the, the official Air Force investigation, but, but through the newspaper clippings and other uh, documents shared with civilian UFO organizations at the time, so we can take a look at all that body of evidence. So we have A case where we have multiple independent witnesses to the UFO, we have um, it um, impacting the environment, and we have possibly a landing trace case. So we have at least three separate uh, chains of evidence that could have been pursued in 1957 had anybody bothered to pursue them properly. And I think that makes it a very, very strong case.
1: So out of the sightings that happened there, which one do you think is the most interesting, the one that had all of the elements in it? Oh, with the sheriff,
0: obviously the sheriff. And the problem is the sheriff is quoted in newspapers in the day after and two days after seeing that object, seeing a red light, glowing red oval shaped object. And then once he talks to the Air Force, suddenly it becomes this streak of light in the distance. And then the the newspapers begin reporting that. Later on in 1975, um, nearly 20 years after the sightings, a fellow named Don Berliner, a UFO investigator in the United States, talked to the sheriff. And so now we have the sheriff telling Don Berliner, well, it was a glowing oval-shaped object that he saw, that he was within 200, maybe 200 yards of it, maybe 100 yards of it. So he got much closer closer to it than had been reported But to the Air Force. And he saw something that, wasn't, that may have been reported to the Air Force, but they changed the story so it would follow the narrative that was being pushed by the Air Force investigator at the time. But we can document the sheriff saying that before that, and the sheriff saying it afterwards. Later on, the sheriff um, uh, told family members and others about what had happened. And a fellow named Don Berlinson, we got an awful lot of Dons in this case, talking about um, interviewing the widow of the sheriff. And his sheriff's name was Weir Clem. And I just, why couldn't he be something like Jack Armstrong or (laughs) some good solid name? We got Weir Clem for crying out loud. Uh, The sheriff of Hockley County, Level Land being in Hockley County, Texas. Um, According to the widow, according to the daughter, the sheriff had his car checked the next day by the police mechanic. And Burlinson Ber- Ber- talked to the mechanic who was still alive and to confirm this, that the sheriff had brought the car in. So you have to ask yourself, why would the car, the sheriff have his car checked the day after the sightings if his car hadn't stalled? He was looking for a mechanism that stalled his car, and if there was anything mechanically wrong with it, after his close encounter, if you will, with the uh, with the uh, craft. The sheriff also talked about a burned area on the ground uh, reported to him by a rancher or a farmer north of level, I believe it was north of level land, and saw that the daughter of the rancher confirmed that she had seen the the burned area as well. We also know that the Air Force Provost Marshal, Provost Marshal being like the chief of police on the military installation, from Reese Air Force Base, which was 15, 20 minutes from Level Land, searched for burned areas the next day with the sheriff. And according to the newspapers, they didn't find anything. But I think that is another part of the Air Force manipulation of the data. And there's no documentation about the Provost Marshal in the the Project Blue Book file. So you wonder why the Air Force investigator didn't talk to the Provost Marshal from Reese Air Force Base. And I think the obvious reason is they didn't want Uh, We private UFO investigators making that link to Reese Air Force Base. So I think the the point of your question, which is the most important one, is the sheriff, because he's a law enforcement officer. He's talked to an awful lot of the people who are involved with it. He worked with the Air Force on it. And we have his stories documented in the newspaper, documented in the Project Blue Book files, and documented in other things that he said later on. Uh, that were written prior to, (laughs) long before my book was put together, but it kind of corroborates everything that we've heard.
1: And the chapter 13 is called Evolution of Weir Clem. So what do you mean by the evolution? Is The evolution of his viewpoint?
0: Well, the evolution of his story. And and we've kind of talked about it going from, I saw an oval-shaped red object to, well, it was just a streak of light in the distance back to, I saw it. Uh, oval shaped object to uh, the car was stalled and he was looking for it and encompassed in that is also, there was a a three car convoy. The sheriff was in his car with one of the deputies behind him was a state police car. I think it's now called the uh, Texas department of public safety, but it's the state police. And there was a third car holding air force officers. And I found some documentation. These guys were there but they drop out of the story completely and totally. And you have to wonder, did, were they in, who, who interrogated them? Were they talked to by the Air Force investigator? And why is that part of the Air Force uh, the, you know, Project Blue Book files? But in the evolution of where Clay we're talking about how his story was modified and you go from the original story to the Air Force version back to the original story and then what friends and families were able to provide us with later in, uh, interrogations and investigations.
1: And when he first started getting calls in about the sightings, he just thought it was a joke.
0: They all did. The police, law, law enforcement thought it His first call came in around 10.30 on a Saturday night from Pedro Saucedo. And he's a veteran, veteran of uh, the Korean War. He was a um, sort of a jack of all trades, you might say. He was a barber. He was a ranch hand. He did a lot of different things to earn a living. Uh, he encountered the thing early on. He was so frightened by it, it, when his truck stalled, he dived out of the truck and rolled underneath and his pastor sat, passenger sat in the front seat and just stared at the thing for five or six minutes before it took off and then saw Cedar got back in the truck and they were able to start the engine. They were so frightened by what they had seen that he um, wouldn't go to Leveland because the, the object was between him and Leveland. He went to another small town and called the sheriff. And of course, the reaction of the law enforcement there was that he must be drunk and didn't think anything of it. Uh, And then other calls started coming in and they were wondering if some kind of elaborate joke being played on them or what's going on to the point where then the sheriff said, well, we've had enough of this. Um, Talking to various people who are now calling in with the same sort of story and the call uh, with the the engine stalling and that sort of thing that he went out to search for it. And that's where we get to the point where the sheriff saw it himself. So the original idea was it was some kind of they were either drunk or some kind of elaborate joke. The sheriff said later. I talked about witnesses at 13 separate locations, which we can document through various um, files and newspaper clippings people in various areas. The sheriff said at one point to uh, Don Berliner, I believe it was, that he literally got dozens of phone calls about this thing that night, and that kind of inspired him to go out. So we've moved from over a dozen to the sheriff reporting there were dozens of calls but we didn't have we don't have all those names we have some of the names and we've, we've followed up on that as much as we can I say what and I say we I, I think of a number of people who've, who've um, kind of contributed to this whole idea and I mentioned Don Berliner I mentioned Don Berlinson because they've uh, done work in the Loveland area as well.
1: And your book's full of sighting reports and you, it seems like you do so much research to pull this all together. You must have tons of documents and access to documents.
0: Well, the internet lives. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've been around the field long enough that I have um, colleagues all over the world, literally, that I can send a question to and get an answer to. And I, I, I think of... Um, I have a colleague in Sweden who I was able to send a question to, and he could answer it. And I have a colleague in Brazil, the same sort of thing. I have colleagues all over the United States, so I was able to pose questions and I was able to gather documents. There's a um, an unpublished survey of uh, some of this that was uh, in the in the um, Center for UFO Studies, and I was able to get a copy of that uh, through the internet and and use that as a resource. I, of course, have a copy of the NICAP. UFO investigator and the April bulletins, and there was additional information in those two documents. Uh, I think both are alive and well on the internet. I just happened to have a, I got a computer disc a long time ago, a CD of all of them. Um, I, have, I have all the Project Blue Book files on microfilm, which is kind of now useless because um, you can see most of that on the internet as well. So the access is now available in kind of a worldwide basis for for this sort of information. So I was able to access an awful lot of that information and find documents that had been produced 15, 20, 30 years ago that are now available on the internet or in other environments and, and look at those to gain additional information. So there's a great deal of documentation about this case. Curiously, the Condon Committee, which was the University of Colorado study funded by the Air Force in the late 1960s, um, mentions level land one time. And all they say is we didn't go to level land because uh, we couldn't, probably couldn't find the cars. And it was 10 years ago. And um, and they did, did investigate and, and covered in the book two cases of electromagnetic effects. And one of them probably isn't a very good case because it sounds like the car was out in, in, in poor repair and may have caused most of the most of the effects, but that was their, their attitude. And their other attitude was, well, they did not know of a magnetic force that could stop the car engine. And when you remove that force, the car engine would stop, restart spontaneously. And that was one of the misnomers in an awful lot of these cases. It it, it seems that people were of the impression that once the uh, magnetic field was removed, the cars would automatically restart. But if you read the cases carefully, what you find out is the car didn't necessarily start spontaneously. The driver took some action. The car started as it normally would. Things like the little clues in there that suggest the driver took an act, an action. In Level Land, there was one guy who insisted that the car started spontaneously when the UFO disappeared, but almost everybody else talked about having to make, do something to cause the car to start. Uh, The idea was you could um, remove the magnetic field and the lights might come back, brighten up, or you remove the field and the, the radio no longer is filled with static, that sort of thing. That made sense to them, but the car starting spontaneously did not. So they kind of rejected this whole idea based on that faulty assumption that when people were talking about these sorts of events, the cars would start spontaneously. And my research into this suggests that's just really not the case.
1: It kind of reminds me of that scene in Close Encounters when Richard Dreyfus is at the railway and his engine stops. And
0: Well, it's interesting you bring that up because there is a case that's related to the Leveland case. It took place a couple of days later and a fellow named James Stokes was over near Oro Grande, New Mexico. And I always like that. Oro Grande means big gold, I guess. Um, not that far from Alamogordo in White Sands Missile Range. And he was driving from Alamogordo, El Paso, and it's, what, two hours or something like that? And uh, he came across a place uh, along the highway near Oro Grande where a bunch of cars were stopped along the road, and he stopped with them. His car actually stopped, uh, um, sputtered and stopped, and his radio filled with static and that sort of thing, and watched an object overhead fly by a number of times and um, when he got home, he noticed that he had a sunburn on one arm and part of his face, kind of like Dreyfus did in Close Encounters. And I think that was kind of the the inspiration for Dreyfus um, manifesting those those um, uh, burns. Uh, the the Stokes, James Stokes uh, called James, Jim and Carl Lorenzen, James Lorenzen. Um, who lived in Alamogordo at the time, and he knew them. And when they went to talk to him, they, could, they saw the, the burn. And, and I, it, it's really kind of not fair to call it, it a really light sunburn, a reddening of the skin, I guess. And by the next morning, it was gone. But it, they did see it and, and reported on it as well. So we have that manifestation as well. The other thing that's important about this case is the work the Air Force did to smear this guy, to make him look like an idiot. Um, he was a, an engineer at Alamogordo and the air force said, well, we could find no documentation that he ever graduated from an engineering school. So he wasn't really an engineer. And interesting, the air force people who worked with him at what then was um, Alamogordo army airfield, later Hullman air force base, the, the, the officers who worked with him said, no, he's an engineer. He had, he, he was retired Navy chief petty officer and the job he had was an engineering job at uh had Alamogordo, so they consider him an engineer, and he was operating as an engineer, and he was doing the work of an engineer. So he had training like that. He just didn't have a degree. And the Air Force attempted to smear him to make his case less important, because that case reinforced what went on level land a couple of days earlier. Because here is now a, uh, a trained observer, an engineer who is reporting on the manifestations of the electromagnetic effects and other things that went on, and they needed to. Um, stopped the public of gaining an interest in what he had to say. So we we see how the Air Force, in this case, attempted to smear um, a number of the witnesses. There was a, a case from um, the White Sands Missile Range, White Sands Proving Ground, I think in 1957. And White Sands Proving Ground, ground is between Level Land and Alamogordo. <laughs> it's right in that area. And uh, four MPs reported, man, uh, objects close to the ground while they were patrolling the base. One of them was uh, like three hours or four hours after the event in, in Leveland. And then the, the second patrol saw it um, 12 hours after that, had the same sort of thing. The Air Force wrote the cases off as office. One of them, they saw Venus and the other one was the moon. And they pointed out that the MPs were very young. They were only 20, 21 years old and they had high school educations and probably weren't well-trained. And they just caught, caught up in the hysteria of the situation. The problem with the analysis is there was no hysteria of the situation when the first MPs made their sighting because there was was no social take a look at all of that sort of thing uh, in that and how the Air Force attempted to smear these guys. And I always thought it was kind of odd that they would point out their young ages and their training because I was 19 years old as a helicopter pilot and aircraft commander in Vietnam. And nobody questioned my expertise or my ability to do that because of my young age. And I think it was an unfair accusation by the um, Air Force to point out to the guys young age as a way of uh, weakening their credibility as well. So you can see the Air Force manipulation there. They're not interested in investigating the case. They're interested in uh, explaining it however they can, however they can possibly explain it, even if that explanation doesn't make any sense. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.
1: Yeah, because what I read about James Stokes in the book is he did seem like a genuine guy and the Air Force tried to make him out like he was just seeking publicity, like he was trying to get in the papers. But I think he also said uh, he talked to a couple of the other witnesses on the road and one of them took pictures of the object. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's the other problem with this case. He, he talked to two other witnesses and had the last name of one of them, I think the full name of the other guy. And they both, one of them was employed at White Sands, but the Air Force never could find this guy. And the guy with the pictures was going to take him to El Paso to have him published in the newspaper, but he never did. Um, and that, that that's very problematic. But I also know that when we get into the involved with UFOs and oftentimes the witnesses, other witnesses are reluctant to come forward. And we, and we can see the reason. I mean, they're smearing James Stokes. Who wants to put themselves in that arena. The Air Force had spent um, nearly a decade um, smearing peoples who had uh, interesting encounters. One of the newspaper uh, headlines from 1947, so where, you know a year, 10 years earlier, was uh, flying saucers seen in 38 states except Kansas. And the gag was Kansas was a dry state. You couldn't buy alcohol legally in Kansas. So the implication was the drunks were out there seeing the flying sausage, but the sober people of Kansas were not. And we've had 10 years of that sort of thing by the time we get to 1957. And I think an awful lot of the people understood that if they come forward with their stories, they're going to be ridiculed. And and James Stokes is the perfect example of that. He came forward with his story. um, And I, I want to say somewhat reluctantly. But the the information was out because he had gone back to his boss at Alamogordo, a major whose name escapes me at the moment, but it's in the book, uh, to ask if he could talk about his UFO sighting. And the guy says, it didn't happen on our time. We don't care. And there was a reporter for a station in Alamogordo who heard it from somebody else and was looking for the guy, James Stokes. Uh, Stokes then went to the Lorenzens, who were running the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and the Lorenzans took him to the radio station because a guy's name was Clark. The um, radio station did so, so Stokes could tell the story on the radio. So. The idea was that he searched out the radio reporter. Isn't quite right. It was it was a radio reporter searching him out. And it was a coincidence that the Lorenzans brought him to the to the radio station. But there was no evidence that he really he was searching for publicity or anything like that. Um, he was there to tell his story. But the Air Force uh, the Air Force made a big deal out of that, which they do. Um, I think they made a big deal out of Kenneth Arnold's sighting back in 1947 that he earned, I think, $200 from a magazine for telling a story. And it wasn't that Arnold went out of his way. It was a magazine editor calling him and wanting him to write out what he had seen and done. And all he did was send him a copy of the Air Force report that he had filled out. So he didn't really write the article. So it wasn't really a, a, a chance or an opportunity for these people to gain some publicity or make a little bit of money. It was their reporting what they'd seen. And then other witnesses saw how they were treated by the media, uh, for the most part, and by the Air Force. And they were very reluctant to come forward. I know the Lorenzans looked for the people at Alamogordo uh, and the photographs, and they just never found them. So you've got to take a look at all of that sort of thing. And it's always kind of problematic when you know there's other witnesses and you can't find them. I'm not sure how extensive the Lorenzans investigation was for these people. But um, if you've got the first name of a guy and where he works, it might be, you know, well, John over here worked at Alamogordo Gordo, or White Sands, and there's only like 10,000 people assigned there and a large portion of them are going to be named John. So, And and John may have been reluctant to come forward with his story.
1: One of the things I read about White Sands Proving Ground, as it was then called in those days, is the first atomic bomb was detonated there. And, you know, they they talk about the modern era of UFOs starting with the detonation of atomic bombs, and they talk about how Roswell was the only air base that had atomic bombs, and then they talk about Rendlesham Forest had a massive store of nuclear warheads. Do you think that uh, the UFOs were hanging around that White Sands area because of atomic bombs going off?
0: Well, the question becomes how did they detect it were they already here because if you go on the flash if they could have seen the flash and understood what it was you know with the the earth backed up with the sun and if it's the flash is facing the right direction and all of that sort of thing could they have detected it the nearest star system is four light years away so um it would have taken the light from that flash four years to get to the near star system they may have a way of short circuiting the the uh, speed of light limitation so they could get here a lot faster than that but it still takes four years for the flash to get to there so i don't think it is related at all i think it's just a coincidence unless they were already here monitoring from somewhere but we take a look at the foo fighters from world war 2 uh, both sides uh, the allies and the axis powers reported these strange things um harassing them, especially the, the aviation assets. Uh, there was a massive investigation by the Allied powers in, in the European theater, uh, based in England, to, to determine what the Foo Fighters were and was it some kind of an advancement of, of German technology that could shift the air war in uh, the balance of power in the air war during the Second World War. But the war ended they never resolved what the Foo Fighters were, but they didn't care. The priority was gone. There was no more war. It wasn't. We weren't worried about the Germans suddenly developing some sort of a technology that, that would change the balance of power in the air war. So the priority left. Then we had the ghost rockets in Sweden in 1946, where they're seeing bizarre things as well. And then eventually it moved to the United States where Kenneth Arnold kind of uh, uh, inspired, and I say inspired, uh, his report was the first one that got any kind of national play. There had been reports prior to that, of course. So I don't think the um, the Trinity detonation had anything to do with the UFO showing up. Uh, I think that once you arrive and you discover that there's atomic, there was atomic testing going on in New Mexico, if you could detect that, and that there's ongoing att- attempts to shoot rockets into space from Al- the Alamogordo area, the White Sands Missile Range, well, that's going to be of great interest to you. And if you can detect the atomic weapons, and you may be able to do that with your sophisticated sensors, whatever they are then you're going to be interested in what's going on in New Mexico because you've got atomic research going on at Los Alamos up in the northern part of the state. You've of course got the 509th bomb group in Roswell and you've got us testing rockets into space. Is that going to be a threat to your home world? And of course the answer is absolutely not at this time. It may grow into a threat, but we certainly have we don't have the capability to get out of the solar system with any sort of speed. I think the, it was the Voyagers. I think the first Voyager is now actually physically left the confines of the solar system after traveling for uh, what, uh, since 1976. So you're looking at nearly, nearly 50 years of travel to get outside the solar system. And you still got a long ways to go to get to a star system. They're talking about it getting to another star system in 80,000 years. So <laughs> it's no real threat to your civilization. Um, but but that's going to be of interest to you until you determine exactly what is our capability and once you realize that capability is not threatening to you you may change your um, exploration But that would be of something of interest and might explain the activity in the desert southwest of the United States in that time frame, simply because of what kind of research was going on there. We were the only country at that time that had the atomic weapons. The Soviet Union soon joined the parade, as did the French, as did the English. And I think the Israelis are uh, a member of the club, the Atomic Weapons Club and that sort of thing. But but at that time, 1947. Only the United States had that capability. So that's going to draw your attention until you realize exactly how threatened that capability might be. And then you can go do other things. And that was like 10 years before anything happened at, at level land. And I think it's interesting that we're you know we're back into the desert southwest more or less at Level Land. Uh, looking at that, it's all part of the Permian Basin, which runs, which is a massive oil field that runs from around Level Land and Lubbock all, all the way over to Roswell. The, the Permian Basin there, so that may have drawn their interest as well.
1: And the thing about the EM effects on cars and stopping the engines and the lights, I think you point out in the book that this is an interesting thing because it's something that you can actually look at in a way because if you got a witness and he just tells you what he's seen you can go to the spot but you can't really gain anything from it but if you know there's been some interaction with the car
0: it depends it depends on what's on the spot i've been to some some um ufo sightings sites where I could understand what had happened based on being there and seeing the the terrain around us, but I think what the Conan committee suggested was there would be a way of magnetically mapping the car uh, using a compass, basically a compass, and laying it in a pattern uh, across the metal of the of the hood or the bonnet, as you would say, the uh, the the roof and uh, and uh, the boot, the trunk. Uh, and, and 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 then comparing that um, magnetic signature to other cars manufactured in the same location around the same time and see if there is significant variation because they all should have pretty much the same um, magnetic map on the car based on the way they were created. And That was one of the things the Condon Committee said, well, we wouldn't be able to find the cars and it's been 10 years and we don't know what other forces may have been um. Uh, placed on those cars in the intervening ten years, and so they didn't bother with that. But it'd be a way of, had they had they thought of that back in 1957, it may have been a way of of verifying that piece of evidence, certainly. And you can look at the car and see if there was some kind of mechanical reason for it to fail. Pedro Sacito had had his car, his pickup truck in to repair, I think the day before, and they said there was a piece of metal that was caught in the rotor on the distributor. They said, this may have caused his car to stall. And my question immediately came, well, why did it stall at the Procross approach of the UFO? And then why could he start it again when the UFO was gone? It doesn't seem like this piece of metal was really had any effect on the operation of the car. And there were other cars that they looked at, but then we get into the idea with the sheriff Well, the sheriff had his car uh, examined the next day and they found no mechanical issues with it. Uh, the Air Force didn't bother to report on that, although we've been able to uncover that information. And I shouldn't say we, I should say Don Berlinson was able to uncover that information by talking to the mechanic. So we, yeah, yeah, there's there's things that can be done. And then they were out looking, well, the, the thing was close to the ground. Did it land? Did it leave any kind of traces? And we have landing trace cases. Uh, Ted Phillips, I think it was, has cataloged, or I should say, uh, cataloged uh, 4,500 landing traces where uh, impressions are left on the ground, where burn areas are left on the ground, where the, the vegetation is matted in a uh, a pattern, a circular pattern or whatever. So there's, there's like 4,500 of these cases that uh, uh, provide additional evidence. And they were out looking for that sort of thing in level land. And once again, we have information suggests that kind of thing could be found. The problem was... Um, the Air Force was busy suppressing the information. And like I said, we can we can tell that based on the sheriff's testimony uh, from, from what he said prior to the Air Force arriving to what he said after the Air Force left until he was no longer sheriff and what he told to Don uh, Berliner in, uh, you know, 19... I think it was 19, 1975, 1976. I think it was published in
1: 1976. Is there... A thing where these EM effects are still happening with UFO sightings or did it peter out through the 60s? I suppose car technology got better, but maybe the UFO technology got better.
0: Yeah, we have. Uh, if you take a look, there's a compendium at the end of the book and it's no nowhere near as comprehensive as it could have been. Um, um, Mark Rodiger from the Center of Fuel for UFO Studies had done a report in the mid-1980s on um electromagnetic effects and, and uh, on uh, specifically on cars vehicle interference is what he called it and so we have we have a compendium up through 1985 which was fairly comprehensive, created by, by Mark Roddicker, which I, I access in the book. Mark didn't go into other aspects of it, like radio stations being knocked off the air, power failures, animal reactions to it. And we have many, many, many cases where I a mean, close approach of a UFO affects animals. So they're, they're detecting the, the radiations, whatever those radiations may be, and it, and it causes some anxiety in the animals. Um, so they go on, and, and in, in, in the book, I take it up into the 2000s uh, of these cases. In fact, I just heard one the other day um, from 2006. Uh, and I've done, I do a report on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie um, once a week. And I have, I have addressed this issue uh, in those reports a couple of times where cars have stalled or, or there's been electromagnetic effects observed by witnesses. So yeah, it's an ongoing thing, but it, but it is not a standard thing. You have an awful lot of UFO sightings where you don't have any sort of electromagnetic effects. And then you have some where there are And It may be the the differences in the propulsion systems of the craft. It may be other things that we don't understand that not all craft have that. If you look at um, the variety of aircraft we have today, you know, we have jet aircraft, we have propeller driven aircraft, we have helicopters, for crying out loud. So some of them can hover and some of them can't. We have jets that can sort of hover. Um, we have all kinds of things like that, but they don't all do those things. And I think that's part of the problem where may, you may have to be close enough to the UFO that the electromagnetic effects can Affect your car or or whatever, but yeah, we still get those today, and they're still they're still being reported. But it is not a common um, effect of a close approach of a UFO.
1: There were reports of uh, creatures being seen, ETs around these craft, and also in, in uh, France as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of it from from France and South America. And I looked at those sorts of, of cases as well, particularly the ones where there were multiple witnesses. And it wasn't just, just one witness. Or there were landing traces. Uh, there was a, a case in France where it landed on a railroad bed, and it left impressions in the railroad ties or the bedding for the railroad bedding that it was determined by the French police to have been an object that weighed, I think, 30 tons. So it wasn't something that the, uh, the witness could have created, but he also uh, he also uh, reported being uh, paralyzed as he approached the UFO. Some kind of a an effect on his personal body. Once the UFO was gone or the beings disappeared, um, the paralysis broke, and there was there were cases of cars being stalled and animals reacting to it. France and South America, and I say both of those together, because in 19 1954. There was a big wave of, of sightings in France and in South America, and, and there was a number of manifestations of the electromagnetic effects in those. And I think that is the, the first time we had a um, um, concentration of those sorts of effects in specific areas. It wasn't worldwide, it was, it was centered on these two areas and then we get to 1957 we look at it it's it's kind of around the united states around the desert southwest although we do get some of that in other areas of the united states um, like i said in the book there's a long compendium of these sorts of sightings uh, those uh in in the compendium in broad boldface are the ones that i, I explore in the book and in the uh, the ones that are not in the boldface those are the ones that i provide more information then I do just a notation for where it be found in the book, but there's an awful lot of that information. Rodiger, I think, had 485 reports. There was a guy named Eric Hare and someone else whose name escapes me who was looking for compass interference. The UFOs close to it and causing compasses to spin wildly and that sort of thing. I think the first case that I report of in the book was from 1947, associated with the Arnold sighting. And so, um, and I think the last time they published information on it, they had 140 instances of of the cloche approach of the UFO uh, affecting a compass and causing it to spin. In the United States, there's a guy named Fran Ridge who has, has set up what he calls the MADAR network. And this is a group of people who have instrumentation in their homes to detect electromagnetic effects, but they detect a number of sensors to detect a number of different ways that the UFO may affect the environment and record that sort of thing. And then they comb through UFO sightings to see if there is a correlation between a detection by these sensors and a close approach of a UFO, which I think is a wonderful way of kind of documenting Uh, UFO sightings, I suggested to them that they should make sure that the the witnesses or the the node operation, what they call the node, the Madar node, has a camera so that he could rush outside and take photographs, which would add a level of, of, um, uh, evidence And I also suggested that um, they have a sh- network of friends around them and say, well, you know, I've got an I- indication the UFO is overhead. Go outside and see if you can see it and take photographs because we could gather an awful lot of information if we could have photographs taken from two or three separate locations at that time. And I was just so pleased with myself for thinking of that and realized that the uh, French Ridge had already thought of it. And it was one of the things that they were they were talking about doing. But um, yeah, it's there's an awful lot. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of false, um, false positives. I guess you would call them uh, detections going on. Other things trigger the you trigger the the nodes, the the sensor arrays, um, so they don't have a correlating sighting. But it, you know, I mean, it's a way of gathering um, data through instrumentality. I just love that word, instrumentality. Um, but gathering gathering uh, additional data so you would have the sensors what they what they detected and it's there's electromagnetic, I think there's barometric pressures, there's other things that uh, could cause an anomaly that would give them some kind of a uh, data that is not captured by humans but it's captured by the instruments. And then if you could get the photographs in multiple locations, you'd have a very, very um, strong case or something going on. Uh, and so they're, they're attempting to do that in a fairly scientific and rigid manner. And I think it's a wonderful way to go. And it's all based on the idea that there's the UFOs, some of the UFOs, give off um, signals that can be detected. And that's the thing that I, I think that we look at our own technology. You know, we have in our fighter aircraft, in our bomber aircraft, missile launch technology, or radar technology, and the and, and and if you're flying one of those, the people on the ground can detect if you're sending out an electronic signal of some kind, like a radar signal, signal or something like that. They can t- detect that as well, and and trace trace you with that. And of course, there's um the infrared way of capturing information. So, so we can look at a lot – there's a lot of different sensor arrays that can be put into play on these sorts of things and gather data. I think Avi Loeb, he's the Harvard astronomer who has uh, created the Galileo Project, and they're searching through things coming into our solar system and going out like, like happened before, suggesting um, an intelligence um. Creating this thing to go through our solar system, but it's traveling at sublight speed. So who knows how long it's been traveling and that that sort of thing. But uh, when I was chatting with him about that, he wanted to remove the human element completely, take away the observers and just gather the data through the instrumentality uh, because then it wouldn't be biased by human influences, and I think, but somebody's got to interpret the data. Crying out loud, and I, I couldn't see where there was a difference between the way um, NICAP was gathering the data and Loeb and his Galileo project was were going to be gathering the data. Um, they're using their instruments to. Observe these objects. So I I couldn't understand the difference. He seemed to be a little bit when I interviewed him on my, my radio show, he got a little annoyed with me, pressing him on looking for UFOs and UFO history, because I thought there might be, you know, if you avoid the history of UFOs, then you're going to make some of the same mistakes and that can be eliminated. Now you understand the history. Now we can move into the the other arena. And he wanted to keep the UFOs out of it. But now he's got some um, UFO people working on his Galileo project as well. So, But these I don't think of these guys as really historians. They, they seem to be more contemporary than um, the, the people like Jerry Clark, for example, who's been studying the phenomenon for uh, his entire life and has a deep knowledge of all the various aspects of it, including the electromagnetic effects. But I think all of that, you know, we have to take a look at all of that. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy.
1: Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com And you've got uh, so much documentation in the book. We see pictures of it as well as pictures of people. And you've got, I think it's report cards from Project Blue Book. And you say that you've got microfilm of all this stuff, but I would imagine the government wouldn't want this stuff out there, would they? Is it just free for the public now?
0: Project Blue Book was declassified in 1976. A fellow named Jack Webb, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. He was the guy behind Dragnet, just the facts. He did a project in uh, a, a program in 1976 called Project UFO. And the Air Force had... Closed down Project Blue Book in 1969. All the materials had gone to Maxwell Air Force Base, which was the Air Force Archives, and it was declassified. And I got a report. Uh, I was in ROTC at the time, Air Force ROTC, and they knew of my interest in UFOs, and it had been announced through some kind of bulletin that went to the various Air Force units. And they said, you know, the Project Blue Book files are available for scrutiny. Uh, They've been declassified, so there's no problem getting into it. Webb... Learned this as well. He was responsible for having the files microfilmed. There's 96 rolls of microfilm. There's 130,000 documents. It's all available on the web now, um, for the most part. There's there's some gaps in what's on the web, but you know I can fill that in with the microfilms. But there was a what they called a project card, and it was just basic information about the sighting, the date, the location, the number of witnesses, and and a, a few remarks about it. Level land, the card shows it being solved as ball lightning, which is absolutely preposterous. But their documentation is available and I you know scattered it throughout the book to show that the documentation exists and I'm not making this stuff up. Um, because they're, they're, in, in ufology and lots and lots of areas of, of study, writers tend to, and if they're just writers as opposed to ufologists or whatever they're doing, tend to follow what's gone before them. I'm going to write a book about UFOs. So I make a survey of all the books that have been written, and I pull out the cases that I'm interested in, but I don't bother to vet them. I figure that the guy who wrote the book has vetted them. But that's not necessarily true. And they think, well, the publisher would have fact-checked it. That's not necessarily true. It really kind of depends on the book and what it is, uh, whether or not it's fact-checked, and whether the writer has bothered to vet the material. What I had done I was working on a book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky. I'd done a book earlier called The History of UFO Crashes. And there was a guy in there in the first book named Robert Willingham, who told a story of a crash near Del Rio, Texas in 1948, signed an affidavit. guy was a high-ranking Air Force officer, a colonel coming out and saying, I was involved in this thing and I, I saw this and I did that. And so when I got to writing um, Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, which was I was putting together in 2009, it was published in 2010. I looked on the Internet. What can I find about this Willingham guy? And discovered that there had been a book written about his experiences called um, uh, The Other Roswell. Everybody's now is The Other Roswell, the it Roswell. Rendlesham Forest is England's Roswell and something else is Russia's Roswell. Um um, but it was booked by Noah Torres and uh,
1: um,
0: Robin Uarte, Ruben Uarte. And I looked at the story that, as they published and I said, this is not the original story. It's changed significantly. So I got in touch with, with Noah Torres and talked to him about it. And I said, they had been interviewing Willingham. And I said, well, what evidence do you have? And he had pictures of him in his Air Force uniform from the 1960s proving that he was a high ranking officer and sent me the pictures. And I looked at him and I said, this is not an Air Force uniform. It's a Civil Air Patrol uniform. Civil Air Patrol is an auxiliary of the Air Force, a civilian auxiliary, and it performs an important function. It takes, it does an awful lot of search and rescue. It trains youngsters in aviation. It provides community service. It's an auxiliary of the Air Force. They wear Air Force uniforms modified. Uh, But they don't receive retirement points and they don't get paid It's a volunteer organization. And when you look at the picture, one of the pictures from him in the 1960s had this metal plate above the um, right breast pocket. And it says right on there, if you can read it, it says, you know, Civil Air Patrol Auxiliary of the United States Air Force. So, I knew it was an Air Force, I was new a Civil Air Patrol uniform because you could blow up that section, you actually see it. And in the Civil Air Patrol uniform, they wear the rank on one side and CAP on the other. When the Air Force, they wear the rank on both sides of the collars. So, that kind of shot that down. So, I said to, to Noah, did you check the guy's records? And he said, no. So, I went to St. Louis. I didn't go to St. Louis. I, I mailed them a request for the guy's military record and discovered that he had not been a high ranking Air Force officer. He'd claimed to be a veteran of World War II, but it turned out he had joined the army in December of 1945 and was in the army until January of 1947, you know, what 13 months. Technically, he was a veteran of World War II because the war was not officially declared over until the middle of 1946. Never heard a shot fired in anger. I think he eventually was sent as part of the occupation forces to Germany. He wasn't really a veteran of World War II. Um, And he wasn't a pilot, as he claimed. He wasn't a high ranking officer. He gained the rank of E4, which is a very low ranking enlisted grade. He um, had a picture of him in his Civil Air Patrol uniform. And I knew it was Civil Air Patrol. In an Air Force uniform, you are not allowed to wear your Civil Air Patrol ribbons. If you're in a Civil Air Patrol uniform, you get to wear your Air Force ribbons or your military ribbons along with your Civil Air Patrol ribbons. The military ribbons take precedence. They're always higher up. He had on both Civil Civil Air Patrol ribbons and his um, uh, alleged military ribbons. I could find no documentation to support the wearing of any of the, the ribbons he had. The other thing is if you were a military pilot, you go through flight school as I did, one of the things they did as we completed our training there, and just before we were uh, we were appointed ward officers and handed our wings, or rated, as they say, uh, they said, you know, well, we're holding a class over the weekend. If you attend the class, you can take a test with the FAA, and, and you can get an FAA-approved license. And it would be a commercial pilot's license. To be a commercial pilot, you have to have 200 hours of training or flight time, And the FAA figured if you've got 200 hours of Air Force flight time, or in my case, Army flight time, um, you would be qualified. And all you have to do is take a a 50-question written test as opposed to a flight test and all of that stuff. I know of no military pilot who has gotten an FAA license who has a private pilot's license, which is a lower grade. They all have commercial licenses. Willingham was where FAA FAA license was for a private pilot. There's absolutely no reason for that, unless of course he was not an Air Force pilot. So we could find no documentation, but the point simply is with the internet now, we can check these things out. There's all kinds of sources and we have to vet the information. So you get a lot of people writing books, they're not vetting the information, they're taking it from somebody else, assuming it's been vetted and reporting as as, if it's true and putting their own spin on it. So with the Level Land book, I tried to vet all the information, go back to the original sources. So-and-so said this. Well, can I prove that? So when the sheriff is the perfect example, we have the Air Force document where the sheriff said it was a streak of light in the distance. What did he say originally? He said it was an oval-shaped object. What did he say later? It was an oval-shaped object. So there's a manipulation of the data there that we were able to clarify. So you 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 have that problem with... Um, people not vetting the information. Back when I was beginning my writing career, I um, came across the story of a guy disappearing in Wales in 1909. And I called, um, it was in a book by Brad Steiger, I'm sure a name you recognize. Uh, I knew the secret of finding Brad Steiger. Brad Steiger's that was his pen name for the long time. He He finally had his name legally changed to Brad Steiger, but his name was Eugene Olson. And I knew he was teaching... Uh, at uh, I think it's Loras College in Dubuque, Iowa. Not, uh, uh, not Dubuque. Um, it was teaching in college De- decora, Decorah, Iowa. And so I called directory assistance back in the days when you had to call directory assistance. People, we didn't have the internet. Um, and I asked for the phone number of Eugene Olson, and I got it. So I knew the secret, and I called him up, and I said, "You know, I'm talking. I'm looking. I'm doing this." story or this article on people disappearing. And I've come across this story from from Wales. He said, don't run it. It's a hoax. I've, I've learned it's a hoax. So Brad Brad's attitude was he was going to accept what people told him as the truth until he found out otherwise. He would not necessarily aggravate people by vetting it all the way to the end, but he would ask questions. And when he found the truth, he would tell you what the truth was. And so he and I developed a long-term relationship of that sort of thing, calling one another to to verify information. But you find that story from Wales um, showing up periodically still in books because they come across Brad Steiger and they figure, well, it's true, and they don't look beyond that uh, another example was a guy, and the story is almost similar. It took place in South Bend, Indiana, where a fella disappeared. He was, they were, it was Christmas time. Um, it was 1880, 1889 or 1890 or 1891, depending on the source. Um, they'd been caroling at the house, and the father says, go out to the well and get some water. And as he goes out to the well, he starts screaming, they've got me, they got me. And he, and he disappears, and he's never seen again. They find the bucket laying in the snow and his footprints in the snow. So, um, the guy who originally reported that Morris K. Jessup said it's all written down in the South Bend police department for you to verify. So I, I called the South Bend police department to verify. And he says, our records don't go back that far. Unfortunately we had a big fire in the 1920s and it burned up a lot of those records. So we don't have them. So I called the newspaper and I talked to a very nice woman there and she was very helpful. And, uh, the It was Oliver Lurch, I think. The Lurch family still lived in South Bend and she had gone out to interview them. And she sent me a bunch of articles from the paper. What the Lurch family said, no, it's not true. Turns out from the weather records, the um, there was no snow on the ground at Christmas time in the year it was supposedly happened. Um, the minister who is, I think it was a Lutheran minister who is reported as saying that he was there. Uh, They went through the records and you find no evidence of a minister by that name in that area at that time. So you go through all that vetting process to eliminate the story. But the problem is that story still shows up periodically. Uh, Same with the Bermuda Triangle and some of these other things. I just get so annoyed when somebody comes up with these stories and say, well, you know, here we are. I did a big thing on the Bermuda Triangle on my, uh, on my, my blog because there had been a report of, um, the the disappearance of flight 19. And uh, I discovered through the internet, a number of people who had investigated in depth and discovered that the information, a lot of the information that is being, published isn't, isn't accurate. Like they said, uh, uh, there's actual graves for a couple of guys from flight 19, or I, I should say markers for some of the guys from flight 19 that disappeared and the families erected them. So, but I mean, anybody who's interested can go to my blog and take, a, just type in Bermuda Triangle, and you come up with a bunch of articles like that. But the real point is I attempt to vet the information as best I can and get to the original sources to see exactly where it takes me. And if I can't get to the original sources, I try to say, well, this is as far as I can take it.
1: Well, it's been great talking to you, and I could carry on forever. I have got so many questions, but uh, we're running out of time. Uh, the book we've been talking about is Level Land, and that's out on um, on Kindle, isn't Amazon. it? Amazon.
0: Well, yeah, Amazon. You can get it on Amazon. You can get a. I've got a hard. I've got a hard copy. Uh, you can get a print copy. Uh, there's a hardback coming out as well. Um, so in fact, if you go to Amazon, you can order the hard copy. I don't know if Philip has got that into the publication yet or not. And that was one of the reasons that a lot of the documents are copied at the end, because he said that uh, uh, you know, when, I, when I reduced him to put them on a page to where they belonged, uh when he reduced it, the book further to make the hard copy, you couldn't read the documents. So I put the documents like that at the end in an appendix so you can, you can read them on a full-size page but I don't know when the hardback is coming out, but the paper, you can get it in paperback now, or you can get it on your Kindle. You can get it as an ebook. So it's out now available. Can you tell us about your, your other books? And I have a blog, well, I have a number of blogs, actually. Uh, one of them is at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and that's my UFO blog. There's a search engine on there, and you can type in Land and get other things I've written about Land or some of the things we've discussed today. Um, you just type in the, a keyword, and it'll take you to the articles I've written about that. I do a blog called Vietnam Ground Zero, Vietnam Ground Zero, all lowercase, one word, uh, .blogspot.com, and it's, I say my relatively true experiences in Vietnam, and I say, say that because some of my memories I found out were not right. Uh, I had thought for the longest time, for example, we got scrambled in the middle of our Thanksgiving meal that we were moving through the chow line and they scrambled the flight crews. And I left my tray sitting in the serving line as we scrambled away. But I found a letter that had written home about Thanksgiving and we hadn't been on our home station. We had been, we had been deployed to Tane Inn for the day and I don't know what the, I don't remember what the mission was. And we were going to be fed by the the locals there. And it was a real crappy meal I found out and we had to pay for it. But the um, but the point was Thanksgiving meal was not left in the serving line. There were times when we were in the mess hall and we had to leave. And I did leave trees in the serving line when the flight crews were scrambling but not on Thanksgiving. So my memory was not as accurate as it could be, but with the letters I'm able to, to uh kind of explain where things are like that. But that uh, deals with my experiences in Vietnam. And I do have a science fiction blog, which is cleverly called the Science Fiction Site. Again, one oneword.blogspot.com and a number of science fiction stories I've done. I've written... 25 or 30 books of science fiction. I've written Action Adventure and I've done a great number of UFO books. So you can find all of that at Amazon. Uh, the, U- the Vietnam books are under Eric Helm. The other books, the science fiction books are normally under my own name, Kevin Randall, as are the, um,
1: the UFO books. Great. That's amazing how much you've produced. Well, thanks a lot for coming onto the podcast. It's been really great talking to you. I've had a good time. And that was an interview with Kevin Randall about his book Level Land. A great way to support the podcast is to sign up on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. This is the free one hour version of the episode. The extended episode is an hour and 29 minutes. If you join the $4.50 a month tier, you get an extended episode every month. If you join the $7.50 a month tier, you will have access to an extended episode every week and the back catalogue of extended episodes. My website is pastliveshypnosis.co.uk, where you can find my other podcast. It's called The Past Lives Podcast and there are nearly 200 episodes and it is where I look into evidence of the afterlife. And In my work as a clinical hypnotherapist, I take people through past life regressions. And when you book a Past Life Regression Hypnosis session with me and you've signed up to Patreon, you get a 25% discount. And I'm offering a free consultation call, which can be booked on my website. My Instagram is the Past Lives Podcast with an underscore between each word and on Twitter I am at Simon G. Bowne. And if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And thanks for listening.